What's up, everyone? Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. Recently, Justin and I had a chance to speak with Andrew Davis, who's a process philosopher, theologian, and scholar of cosmological wonder. He's also the program director for the Center for Process Studies, uh, doing research, teaching, uh, organizing conferences, etc. He's written a short book recently called Metaphysics of Exolife, toward a constructive Whiteheadian cosmotheology, which we talk about, although we don't limit our conversation uh, to that. We do get into a few other related things as well. I think we inadvertently touch on uh, some themes from his previous work, Mind, Value, and Cosmos, on the relational nature of ultimacy. I'll link to Andrew's website, as well as where you can get the book, in the show notes, so check those things out. I'm going to go ahead and consider this part two of our meandering and undisciplined uh, comparative study of uh, American pragmatism, process, and radical theologies. Um, I'm thinking maybe after we uh, have a few of these under our belt, it might be fun to take a more uh, sustained or focused look at what some of these differences amount to. I have a suspicion that quite a lot can be attributed to affects, attitudes, and aesthetics. Um, And I'd love to do an actual scientific study of that kind of thing. Uh, I wonder if that's something the Center for Process Studies would want to support. Anyway, we're at warmachinepodcast.com. And here's Andrew Davis. Peace. So I am Andrew Davis. I'm a philosopher. I'm a theologian in the process tradition, process philosophy, process metaphysics, which I am assuming some of your listeners are going to know about Whitehead, certainly. From what I know about the podcast already, you have a a lot of strands connecting these ideas. So I work professionally in, in process philosophy and theology. So you may have known of the Center for Process Studies, which uh, for 50 years had been a faculty research center of Claremont School of Theology. That's where I did my doctoral work. And only recently has become an independent nonprofit research organization. Uh, so I lead research there. I lead program and or- uh, conference organization. And we exist to develop conferences, to develop course materials and book series on all sorts of topics that are raging today across philosophy, science, and religion. We attempt to investigate, explore, and apply the insights of process thinking to those to those topics. So I know our conversation today is going to jump into this whole notion of astrobiology, extraterrestrial life, etc. And this is a topic which unfortunately has been neglected in previous years. So I get to lead research and write and speak and develop conferences and network with friends like you and others. So it's a pretty rare opportunity and I'm, I'm happy for it, actually. Thankful for it. Yeah. Uh, what was your initial attraction to process philosophy? Yeah. I know it's sometimes different for different folks. The it's a long story in some ways. I was raised, you know, in an evangelical household, quite conservative. Always loved to poke at the universe. Careful, so it, it pokes back. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Like that Nietzsche comment, you know, you look into the abyss and something's looking back at you, which is not always a good thing, uh, by the way. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I had a number of questions theologically, philosophically, that led me to um, investigate metaphysics and questions of metaphysics. Of course, there's existential questions, problem of evil too, where process thinkers have contributed quite a bit. So my MA work in Claremont first introduced me to process thought and some of those resources. And 
I really fell in love with it, you know, and started reading Whitehead and others voraciously. And it's just sort of gripped me ever since uh, as a framework for thinking about reality and for thinking about the variety of philosophical and existential problems we're facing. So uh, it was a natural progression. But, you know, when I look back, it can go back to one class it was called Ministry and the Problem of Evil, where I first was introduced to some of these ideas and was sort of hooked from from then on, then on you know. Mm. So that question of evil from an academic place was really with the different, because I know the problem of evil is oftentimes the point of entry for a lot of process folks, but it's usually coming from, or oftentimes yeah. coming from a more sort of urgent existential crisis of some kind, right? I mean, Whitehead himself, uh, it's hard to think about his project aside from uh, his losses. It is, it is. Yeah. And, and if you talk to Bertrand Russell, he'd say, you know, well, this is really the reason Whitehead turned to God. You know, I think it's more complicated than, than that existential issue, but certainly you're right that we can never really divorce the man and the philosophy in some way, the existential issues, the life setting and the philosophy are deeply related. So I wouldn't say for me that I had any one profound existential issue uh, beyond the magnitude of evil, just wondering how the hell we, we sort of face this. Um, mm -hmm. And not only within a religious framework, because I have a Christian background and I still navigate the Christian fold, but just simply as as a fellow human and wondering, you know, if we do have a God of goodness and love, well, how do we face this? So I wasn't interested in metaphysics at the time. That class introduced me to thinking deeply about metaphysical issues and sort of just uh, has led all the way up to this point where now I get to throw conferences on metaphysics and whatnot and, uh, and continue those those questions. Um, but existential issues are a part of it. And I think even with this question of aliens and extraterrestrial life, this is also an existential issue. This, this deeper question of are we alone has some bearing on how we think about reality in a, in a deep way. And it's all very daunting, but I'm excited by it, you know, even today still. Yeah, I suppose as a thought experiment, certainly it has interesting existential implications. Yeah. Um, I will say uh, I was a little disappointed because it says metaphysics of exolife, not aliens. Okay, good. Well, I was I was sort of bickering with myself about the uh, <laughs> about the title. Um, I suppose if it had the word aliens on it, it would change. Uh, you know, maybe I'd be selling more. A little less respectable <laughs> academically, but you'd sell more. Yeah, I mean, extraterrestrial life is a quite quite a long word, but the origin of the title goes back to a class actually. 2017, Roland Faber was my doctoral advisor at Claremont, and I was his teaching assistant for the time, research assistant as well. And we put together a class called Religions and Exolife. Mm -hmm. you know, the purpose being just to, to get a grip on some of this long-standing history and the ways in which philosophy and theology have been wrestling with these issues for so long. So I think that sort of was a part of my, uh, my uh, because that's the history of this book in some way. It, it opens with that that narrative backdrop, and Exolife comes from that, that early uh, early class. But it could have been different. Aliens are certainly part of the discussion of this book. Uh, they're not the only part, right? So it's a, a metaphysics of, right? So we're talking about dimensions, arguably, that are at the, the base of our ontology, arguably, and that find expression in exolife, alien life forms, uh, superior superintelligences, et cetera. Yeah. So it's a whole spectrum. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting the way that you use this sort of extraterrestrial question in, in some ways, like a framing device, I think for opening up questions of, you know, platonic objects and, and process metaphysics and things where I don't think you would necessarily like need to open those questions through the extraterrestrial lens, right? I could, people have asked similar kinds of questions looking at, you know, multiculturalism or, you know, these sorts of things. Um, So I wonder what was it specifically about the extraterrestrial question that, that you saw as, as maybe opening these questions in a different way than than they've been opened in the past. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's important to bring in the name of Stephen Dick here too, because the, this book really is a constructive philosophical critique of 
of what Steve Dick has called naturalistic cosmotheology. Just for listeners, for a little backdrop, Stephen Dick was NASA's former chief historian in the uh, Bloomberg Chair in Astrobiology at the Library of Congress. So he, for many years, has been writing on the history of uh, the plurality of worlds and extraterrestrial life and the debates that are going on internal to philosophies and religious systems, you know, all the way back to the, to the Greeks and up to today. And one of the central questions he's asked is specifically, how is it, say, that philosophies and religions would potentially need to change in light of the impact of discovery? You know, so his proposal is to rethink uh, in a deep way these foundations of theological thought away from anthropocentrism, away from supernaturalism, uh, which I would fully agree with, but would be reframed on a Whiteheadian scheme. Um, but part of that discussion with respect to the Platonic notion as well is this notion of extraterrestrial commonality. I think that's it's a growing discussion now. There's it's various chapters across a lot of the literature now. But the Platonic shared domain is one that's received some attention, right? If we do share arguably axiological domains, or we don't exactly know what that would be like or mean immediately, but that's a basis for a form of commonality or mathematical domains or domains of aesthetics and beauty, right? So in the movie Contact, if you'll remember, you've seen it, it's this connection between mathematical pattern and beauty in some way, mm -hmm. you know? And I was sort of captured by this notion of extraterrestrial commonality and just commonality in the sense of if we can cohesively think about a metaphysics, which in principle applies anywhere and everywhere, regardless of cosmological contingencies, then that is a basis for us to begin thinking about imaginably, certainly, our connection to other extraterrestrial beings. And I'll just say that process thought has not really been involved in this discussion. So the book has a narrow focus in terms of a constructive critique of Stephen J. Dick, uh, but it also has a broader focus in the appendix in, in saying that, hey, there's actually been quite an interesting history of statements that have been made by a variety of process thinkers, you know, all the way back to the first sustained article by Lewis Ford, 1968, you know, presumably with the, the moon landing in view, where he's navigating these issues in, in a very fascinating way. So I wanted to document that history and then republish that article too, as a way to say, you know, this is stimulus for process thinkers to get involved in this conversation in ways that we that we haven't. So it's quite interesting. I think we're there's a lot of contributions coming out in this discussion from different philosophical and theological angles. And I wanted to throw my uh, processual hat into the ring and in part see what happens. And it's paying interesting dividends already. So um, it's adventurous. I guess I'm curious as to, in your opinion, what's at stake in this kind of interrogation or exploration, metaphysical exploration? That was something I had a little bit of a hard time kind of putting my finger on. I mean, certainly, yeah, it's speculative and I understand that. But what are like the real sort of terrestrial stakes of a project like this? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, for one, we live in a universe that has given rise <laughs> to terrestrial stakes, right? A uh, universe that's given rise to to life and mind and value. And this for me is somewhat haunting. And I, I want to know to the extent possible what the sort of metaphysical or ontological antecedents of this kind of universe or the, of the, you know, the product of this kind of universe in us. They have to be consistent with us being here. We know that. And I see no reason as to why uh, they should not find expression elsewhere. I think metaphysics or ontology demands that to some extent. But the stakes are stakes of existential belonging, stakes of truth, stakes of wonder uh, and imagination, which all, I think, belong uh, inherently in the universe because they have come forth in us. Um, some would say that the UFO phenomena is quite interesting. I don't know if you all have been following that. Um, and those stakes are high, too. This has political ramifications, theological ramifications, ethical ramifications. People are writing um, legal space theory, et cetera, you know, which is which is all very wild and strange. But but it's it's timely because it's, it's not absurd to think about these questions now. It's not absurd to think that that we are not alone and that if we've not been in contact, which I 
quite skeptical, uh, but that we could potentially, or that in principle, even if we never could travel these sidereal magnitudes of space, as Tehard would say, it's still worthwhile to think theologically, uh, mm -hmm. metaphysically beyond this earth, beyond this planet. The question I was asking about was about the terrestrial stakes. And I get there's yeah. a sort of sort of metaphysical through line there, but really you're kind of pushing yeah. this to, uh, well, a cosmo theology as the title. As the title and, has it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, just to follow up, I mean, and there's reasons that the conversation is being re-energized now, mm. um, you know, but, but again, it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. It's navigated and meandered for, you know, 2000 plus years with all sorts of different uh, arguments as to why there's one world, many worlds, you know, why God would create an infinite world, why God wouldn't, and what those implications are. But of course, the advent of modern cosmology changes a lot of the, the discourse. We, we know since the mid-90s, 1993 or 5, when we discovered the first exoplanet, or this extrasolar planet, that we weren't alone in, in a sort of uh, stellar way. But we know now at least there's 5,000 plus and growing exoplanets. We know cosmological evolution predating all that we know, we have telescopes like, you know, from Copernicus to Shapley to Hubble to now James Webb, that's really blowing us away yet again with our minute size and, and temperament. And then there's the, again, the UF, UAF, UFO sort of phenomenon, which never seems to really go away. That's all sort of populating this energy again. So I just think it's a part of a historical conversation in that metaphysics will always be speculative, um, but that's not a reason to not, to not do it, you know, and to do it in creative ways. So that's what I'm attempting to do, at least in part. So setting aside the the sort of, you know, UFOs and those, right? Which I don't go into, yeah. Yeah, if we set those aside, uh, it remains an open question whether, as you uh, suggested, whether we will have made contact or or ever could make contact with extraterrestrial civilizations or or beings or technology or whatever it might be. Um, so for me, this opens up, I, I think, an interesting methodological question, um, which is how exactly do you understand the sorts of claims that you're making in your work, right? Do you see these as logically necessary structures, right? Do you see these as imaginative possibilities? Um, so I'm thinking here, uh, my own training is in phenomenology, for example, right? So um, Edmund Husserl, you know, famously make his arguments around consciousness. What he wants to insist constantly is I'm not talking about human consciousness. I'm talking about the structures of that any consciousness would have as such. Right. And so you can, yeah. you know, that would be a method that that someone might apply to say, if an alien species could perceive, they would have to perceive in these certain ways or something along those lines. It'd be uh, an argument of necessity rather than imaginative. Are, are you trying to do something um, similar at a metaphysical rather than a phenomenological level? Uh, or do you see this more as as sort of an open field of play? How do you understand the conclusions you're drawing here? Yeah, excellent. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say it's only one of those, right? So there's an element of all of that. There's certainly the element of play, which we should include more of in philosophy. A lot of philosophy is, is sort of imaginative play. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the imaginative dimension is inherent uh, for me. It's inherent in Whitehead's philosophy, right? This notion of imaginative generalization from our phenomenological experience, right? So you, you have this element for me, for Whitehead, where you, there, there's no scenario when you can abstract human experience and disregard it. And pretend like you you can now face the world in a purely objective fashion, right? So we're always contextualized from within our experience. We have to say that in part because for Whitehead, for Tehard, for many others, we're not anything other but the universe in some deep sense becoming conscious of itself. Now it sounds sort of cliche, but it's but it's really not. So we are, as I like to put it, an exemplification rather than an exception of everything that's going on. And if that's the case, that gives us a phenomenological place to start with a certain method. And the method that I've been didn't name it in the book, but the method that I refer to is what I call retrospective induction. It's this imaginative endeavor to 
descend downward from our experience through layers of reality to see, imaginably, at least in part, what they must be like at their most fundamental level. And at least for the process tradition, you know, and in science, of course, is always informing that that imaginative endeavor, at least for the process tradition, the base of ontology is not devoid of a phenomenological dimension. In, in the element of, in the sense of experience, of inferiority, right, as Sehar would put it, of value even, right? So in some deep sense, the fact that the universe has given rise to us means something about its ontology. And the task of metaphysics is to carefully work our way back to piercing what that might might be and using the best of our disciplines uh, to do so. So I don't know if that answers precisely your question, but it, it is a mix of all those, of all those things in, in a deep, significant sense, I would say. Philosophy faces the problem always of how do we best make sense of the fact that we're part of this world and what that actually means all the way down and, and all the way up, right? To the, to the level of, uh, to, of theology, arguably. It's not a settled issue, but we at process thinkers have a certain way of, of going about that. This reminds me of, you know, more recent work thinking about a little closer to home, um, thinking about what the, you know, experiential or phenomenological perspective of animals would be, right? So I'm thinking of yeah. something like you have, you have Nagel's, you know, famous essay, what is it like to be a bat? Um, yeah. But I think one of the interesting things that you've seen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years has been a lot of people turning uh, instead of, of, you know, somebody like Nagel, uh, they're turning to somebody like um, Jacob von Uxkuhl and his work on, you know, what is it like to be a tick, right? And the <laughs> the suggestion that he makes as a biologist and from a biological perspective is that through careful study of the sort of sensory apparatus of different species, we can actually at least imaginatively reconstruct what their experience would be like from that perspective. Uh, and in some ways, it feels like you're you're doing something kind of similar looking outwards rather than to our sort of terrestrial neighbors, right, to our, our potential yeah. extraterrestrial neighbors. Um, but working much more at a, uh, I think, a, a metaphysical level, right, rather than than this experiential. Yeah. Attempting to, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to make draw a big wedge between the experiential and the metaphysical. So for Whitehead, metaphysics is not, you know, wondering about all these things that have no, have no bearing on our experience. It's precisely the imaginative endeavor of working with our experience creatively, imaginally, and with the insights of the sciences. But to come back on one thing you said there, which I think is quite important, is. Biophilosophy is super interesting discussion right now. The question of life, of what is living and what is, uh, I don't even know if I want to say dead per se, right? So these distinctions are not, not very easy to make. And, and Whitehead and Tayhard, others assume that. But um, you know, Michael Levin's work, this element of agency, of, of mentality, of decision, of freedom, of creativity in nature, um, of teleology in nature. So all these terms are coming back at a philosophical level in these discussions. But not just that. We're having scientific perspectives uh, supporting those. So we can not, not, ask not simply what is a bat or what is a tick, but you know what is a, an electron? What is it like to be an electron? Is there some element of interiority there? You know, so if we wouldn't deny experience to ourselves, to bats, to ticks, what else are we not going to deny experience to? Well, at least for the process tradition, experience goes all the way down to nature. So it's what you know David Griffin called pan-experientialism. It's a form of panpsychism, but it's, but it's not conscious experience, uh, but it is experience and feeling uh, nonetheless. So, yeah, it's an exciting, exciting time. But we're diving in, aren't we? This is fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know we were going to go here, but what you're describing is a return of a certain kind of ant anthropocentrism. Mm -hmm. I think there's a danger there of lapsing into bad forms of anthropocentrism. Um, yeah. But I think a part of what you're describing in terms of a practice is something like a, I don't know, like a neo-totemism or something like this, right? Where mm -hmm. you're sort of participating somehow imaginatively in the being of a bear or an electron or something like this, right? 
Uh, definitely. Yeah, it, it's there's no doubt that it's imaginative. Is a totemistic, maybe in one sense. But I fully agree. We have to be careful about being naively anthropocentric. And, and at least um, in this book and a lot of the other books, this is the big default critique of terrestrial, say, religious and theological systems, this anthropocentric quality. Um, but we can't get away from the notion that human beings are a cosmic phenomenon. Uh, we are cosmic in a certain sense. And that's no reason to think that we have a privileged position, but we do have a privileged perspective. We have, we, we're the only one between our ears. That's the only place we can start. So there's a way, I think, to, despite our cosmological decentering, this important Copernican claim, we can metaphysically recenter ourselves in ways that are non-anthropocentric. Our cosmological decentering is a fact, uh, but irregardless, we're, we're still a part of this universe in a significant sense. And all that comes to be within us is part of this universe. Uh, and again, I don't think philosophically, theologically, we fully come to terms with that yet. I'm reading Nagel's book, Mind and Cosmos again, and he makes this wonderful case that we need to expand our metaphysical framework to include life and mind and value. And for him, at least, it, it goes all the way down as well. It's this early panpsychist argument in a certain way. So all this has bearings when you extend it to other planets, because because it belongs in the ontology, arguably. When you extend it to other planets, you should find it there. Uh, whether it's reached the heights it has in us or far surpassed them is quite an interesting question. But that it's there, at least as an ontological prediction, is inherent. Is inherent. Is inherent. Is inherent. That's why. Leveraging metaphysics from experience gets us to presumably a, a form of metaphysical continuity or uniformity across nature that finds multitudes of cosmological expression. But I think the plurality can come cosmologically. When we see this on our planet, we see it planetarily. We see it probably in life and mind elsewhere that are utterly different from ours. And yet there's there's still arguably at the level of metaphysics, something they do a share with us by virtue of existing in this planet, existing in the way they do. Some of the things we've talked about touch on the first two big ideas in your book that humanity exemplifies metaphysical principles that are utterly central to the universe. Sure. And also humanity exemplifies biological, mental, and moral antecedents that are metaphysically central to the universe. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't say much about the moral antecedents. Do you want to say more about that? Right. The second one you read there, humanity sharing, um, you know, biologically, mentally, morally, that's, that's a response to Stephen Dick's second principle, right? That, that says, at a cosmological level, there's no way we are central morally, mentally, or what was the last one, uh, biologically. And I want to fully agree with that, right? We've been cosmologically decentered in these ways. It's not as Earth is morally central. I mean, it's an absurd claim. But in principle, at a metaphysical level, there are antecedent conditions which make these domains possible in our limited uh, cosmological frame. So there are antecedent mental dimensions ontologically. In principle, experience goes all the way down, at least for Whitehead. Uh, there's antecedent uh, biological conditions, this element of organism, which is a living metaphor and not dead, right? So actually, Whitehead even says that the characteristics of life can be assigned to the base of ontology. Uh, there's an element of enjoyment, he says, an element of active aim, creative aim. So it's a living ontology, with this element of organism. And then the moral domain, I think, is quite important, uh, but we have to be careful there. For Whitehead, at least, and I follow him in this, aesthetic value is the deepest, it's the widest form of value that is applicable to the universe at all scales and levels. And only at very high evolutionary levels do we see aesthetic value giving rise to moral value, aesthetic order giving rise to moral order. So morality is quite an interesting one. 
Aesthetic value applies to the universe arguably at the levels of electrons. There's no case for Whitehead in which there's not aesthetic intensity. Mm. But moral value doesn't apply at that level, right? It's not as if uh, electrons can harm each other per se and be ethically, you know, retrieved. <clears throat> um, so that comes later. Mm. But in principle, I'm seeking at, at a metaphysical level, what are the antecedents of biology, of morality, of mentality? And at least for the process framework, right, those, those don't ever quite disappear. But we're wondering about what those antecedents are. Yeah, does that work in reverse? Does that make some kind of morality an antecedent, a metaphysical antecedent, right? If God's uh, consequential nature becomes God's primordial nature, et cetera, it gets folded in, right? But but that doesn't necessarily mean it's uniformly distributed or something like this, right? I'm trying to understand the yeah. moral dimension in particular. Right. Well, I mean, certainly if you, if there is an axiological dimension, right? We might put it that way. It's a broader way of framing it. Mm-hmm. Then the aesthetic nature of it is involved in some sense. The moral nature is involved. Um, there's you know, different dimensions that could be involved. But if we ask how best to make sense of a universe wherein there seems to be at least objective frameworks for thinking axiologically, right? Everything in our experience and our reactions to all the bullshit we see going on constantly assumes certain domains and structures of, or even standards is what have put the standards of value in the universe. How best we make sense of those? So this is a a bridge potentially to thinking theologically. The tradition's done this for a long time. Whitehead does it quite differently. Um, I want to say there's a reciprocity, obviously, between these metaphysical questions and their potential theological answers. You know, but but it's not at all a easy conclusion. Yeah. You know, but but yeah. I mean, what do, you, what do you guys think about this? Because it's this element of of life going all the way down. This element of mind and of aesthetic value going all the way down. These are based ontological claims. And it's obvious that they have implications beyond planet Earth if if they belong to the ontology, right? And that's sort of the playful question that I was discussing with Whitehead and Tehard recently, Bill Nova. Because the universe has given rise to us. It's not obvious that a dead cosmos or a dead ontology, right? Mm. This is what Hans Hans Jonas calls a reductive materialism, a dead ontology. It's not obvious it can give rise to life, mind, and value. So I mean, we're we're back at that question of how do we make sense of the nature and character of the cosmos which brought us into being, and then how yeah. do we carefully leverage that out imaginatively to other planets and other realms of stellar <laughs> discourse? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a good question. I mean, I wonder if that's kind of the key question. It's sort of a hermeneutical problem, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like you're saying, what counts as life, what doesn't count as life, and especially within this broader organismic framework. I don't really have a, a specific answer to that, but as one possible response, we, we're recently working through Clayton Crockett's book on energy and change, where he offers a cosmotheology that is essentially entropy-based, hmm. right? So that that is kind of the central driving dynamic that cuts across organic, inorganic. I don't know if that helps us get any yeah. closer to what, to what life is, but in yeah. terms of a reason for why we get different things, for why we have time, it does seem to explain quite a few things. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, entropy is certainly part of it. There, there's multiple strands that are part of it. And yet there's something counter-entropic in, in the universe too, right? If that, if that wasn't the case, it's hard to explain how it is in some deep sense that you can have higher evolutionary achievement of the kinds that, that we have, right? The, the universe, so I think, is, is fundamentally exploratory in nature. It belongs to the nature of the universe to explore possibilities and to reach for higher dimensions of value. And we, f- we find that, I think, in our own lives ethically, morally, aesthetically, et cetera. It's, it's, there's a haunting element in the nature of things that is calling us beyond the stagnations of the past. And if that weren't the case, I don't see how at all we could ever be here. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of an existential thing. Huh? So I, I, part of the way that you maneuver out of this is you you turn towards 
sort of a, a, a platonic notion of the objectivity of, of values, of the objectivity of mathematics, for example. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you use Whitehead in order to, in some ways, retrieve at least kind of a, a partial Platonism. Yeah, good. Um, well, yeah, I want to make a distinction here because Whitehead's certainly not a Platonist in, in the sort of sense of there's just these independent, unrelated, transcendent yep. forms that have no real sort of relationship or that the world just imperfectly reflects. So he reverses all that. Yep. Um, in fact, he flips the platonic forms on their head in a deep way, right? So that they, the world and the forms are mutually, in a deep sense, requiring each other. They're forms of process. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Whitehead was a mathematician. He speaks about eternal objects of the objective species uh, being these somewhat akin to mathematical platonic forms. Mm -hmm. So there is a domain of, of mathematical necessity that it, I don't think it would be wrong to call it platonic, but again, we want to be sort of careful there. And even beyond that, there's just a realm of constellations of possibilities that are inherent in the nature of things that have to be there, at least in a process universe, for anything to be actual at all. Mm -hmm. um, so Whitehead, I think, is friendly to Plato, right? This whole footnotes to Plato comment, which everybody knows, but it's a re-envisioned platonic framework that is arguably advanced by 2,000 years. In fact, there's one statement where he sort of makes that makes that claim. Um, but I do think we have to face the reality of some manner of platonic-like phenomena, right? Put, put it that way. I don't think we can at all escape the domain of the possible. This seems to be a, an element of necessity in a platonic sense. I also don't think we can escape, nor I think we really want to escape, the domain of platonic value. But the question is, if these things do exist, or not even things, right? If these realms or domains do exist, how do they relate to the world? How do they exist at all? Um, and again, this is where certain theologians and theological moves can be made, right? Say, just as an example, the middle Platonic notion that domains of necessity, axiological or possible, are interior domains of, of the divine life in some sense. So there's a certain coherence to that. There's nothing dogmatic about it, but we do face arguably problems surrounding metaphysical necessity and how we make sense of the fact that elements of necessity can have a, an, an eternal bearing. <laughs> so I, I point at Dick a little bit in, in the book saying, you know, he just assumes you can have an infinitely lush domain of potency and value, but he doesn't ask about the, the nature of that or the framework for, for understanding that. You can do that, but for me, it's unsatisfying. So I want to push to a certain, again, the element of coherence of wherein do we locate platonic-like phenomena, assuming that these realities have to be there. Maybe a question for me to try to get at that, because, you know, I've wondered about that, too, is sure. um, what makes an eternal object eternal exactly? Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because Whitehead says, I give him the name of eternal objects to avoid misunderstanding, right? That's basically <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> well, sorry, Whitehead, that's that's really not what happened. But I mean, they're they're eternal in the sense that they are immutable in and of themselves, right? So they do not change. Um, they ingress into temporality, but they th themselves are not temporal, right? So, so that element of eternal gets this notion of being non-temporal things. Um, objects is a bit more challenging. Um, I think he uses a language of objects to just say that they're not subjects, right? Mm -hmm. They're not something experiential and temporal, which go together, but they're objects that are ingressing into the temporal flux of process, mm -hmm. um, but in principle, in isolation, in abstraction, which is the only way you can talk about eternal objects, yeah. they're non-temporal and purely objective. 
the place you you put these objects right because it's part of this is it's a place question like where are these things like where's the number two right your solution at this point it seems uh at least in my my reading of your argument this is where you make the turn to panentheism as a possible way of answering this question right so there's this is a, a sort of a vulgarized version of your argument these objective values, uh, mathematical objects, things like this, they functionally live in the mind of God in a certain sense. I, I, could you talk a little bit about how you make that move? Yeah, so I mean, framed in the way you framed it is, is with respect to a previous article I you know, wrote called Whitehead and Cosmo Theology, where I'm playing you know, specifically with these elements of truth, beauty, and goodness. So I don't do that as specifically in this book. I'm not sure I even named the position panentheism, but, but I do think we face a real problem. At least Whitehead, I think, is behind me on this too, where he says, without reference to actuality, it's what he calls his ontological principle, right? Without reference to some domain of actuality, there really is nothing, right? So if it is the case that we face a variety of problems when it comes to this kind of phenomena, then how best do we make sense of the, the answer? You can not integrate them into your metaphysics, just say they float in a void in some sense. Some want to do that. Frederick Fury, there's the whitehead without God people, you know, who make this say that infinite possibility, platonic possibility is just... Um, it doesn't require a divine uh, ontological center. It's infinitely diffuse throughout finite actualities, right? That, that's been the claim. Um, people have argued that that's incoherent too. So there's a certain parsimony, I think, that the element of the theological centration allows. It's not as if the conversation stops there, but it really would depend as to whether you do think these platonic phenomena have are problematic in ontology. But it's significant theologically too, because it gives you a place for thinking about what the reality of the divine nature would be like in some mm -hmm. sense. Right? We're talking about that without which nothing is possible in a deep respect. And that claim, at least as I made it there, is a very traditional kind of claim. Mm -hmm. What it renders it quite differently. I mean, so do you think we face uh, platonic problems of these kinds? I mean, it, it's quite a diverse conversation. But there's I, a certain coherence to it. It's absolutely coherent. I understand it. It makes sense. I just... I don't go, I just can't go there. <laughs> <laughs> why Why is that, you think? It's too dualistic. And I understand that there's ways of thinking that more imminently, but doing so doesn't really seem to kind of get me anywhere that I want to go necessarily, or I don't see the the advantage there. But if I had yeah. more of a an a priori commitment to more theistic concerns, I think I'd be like, yeah, that's where it's at. Yeah, but I'm not saying I have an a priori commitment to theistic concerns. I'm not saying you I, do either. Yeah, no, no, I'm no, saying but, if I did, that's what I would go. That's what I would go with. Sure, sure. So I, I just think we really do face certain arguably metaphysical problems and that the element of divinity is not just sort of a religious projection. So I, I would disagree with Russell. It's not just why Whitehead included God. Mm -hmm. Not that we have to just stick to Whitehead. Whitehead, I think, found in, in his system, he ran into certain metaphysical problems that he arguably found no other solution for than in something uh, that the tradition would call God. Of course, he, re he reconceived that quite a bit. He, the language mm -hmm. of God sort of left his lexicon and his, as his thinking developed later. You know, he got more creative, right? the arrows of the universe or the, mm -hmm. the experience of the universe has one. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it depends upon what we find metaphysically problematic and mm -hmm. what we find metaphysically uh, convincing as a coherent solution, ar arguably, to, to those problems. At least one way I see this is being it's a, it's a question about the relationship between possibility and actuality i think yeah. in a certain sense and how does reality you know emerge out of this and what i i take to be your argument is that we need some sort of actuality in order to 
to do the actualizing of possibilities in order for reality to emerge. Um, but it, it makes me think of somebody like Deleuze, who who I take his word where he he wants to argue that he sees himself as uh, sort of a, a friend of Whitehead in many ways. He at one place he, he describes Whitehead as, as basically the only American he reads, and uh, what he argues in you know something like Difference and Repetition, for example, is the sort of opposite where he wants to make potentiality fundamental possibility fundamental and he wants yeah. to to try to derive actuality from potentiality to frame this as a, a into a question right what do you what do you find unsatisfactory about that attempt to derive actuality from potentiality that you think the opposite is is a little more metaphysically powerful nice yeah except for that's not what i think <laughs> okay perfect that's wonderful <laughs> no but but just to comment on uh it's such a good question and right that is such a fundamental question about physics too like all the way back but just on Deleuze right I love I love uh what he says I think it's in Leibniz the Baroque where he talks about why did being one of the most significant or most important philosophers of the 20th century mm -hmm. that's a big sort of props to Whitehead <laughs> especially given Deleuze I don't want to make a dualistic claim at all between these two realities I don't want to say that one is fundamental and one is not fundamental so in my previous book Mind Value and Cosmos subtitles on the relational nature of ultimacy I'm precisely making the claim that for something of the synthesis of possibility and actuality, the mutual mm -hmm. requiring of them is what we need, mm -hmm. not the the not deferring to one over and against the other. So, and I think Whitehead makes this claim too. He'd say the condition for anything being actual is its possibility. The condition for any possibility is an actuality, right? So again, you're stuck in this relational mm -hmm. yeah, entangle. Nice. So I mean, that's what I'd want to put push towards. I do the same with value and arguably with some element of mentality. Right. So some have wanted to say John Leslie, whose work I love, he's a really rigorous and curious philosopher and quite, quite fun. But he makes the case that the world exists because of it's an ethical requirement for it to do so. Right. So there's this indefatigable value that is creatively effective for him. And it's that value that makes sense of divine mind, makes sense of the world's existence. Value is preeminent. Mind is secondary. Uh, somebody like Keith Ward makes just the opposite claim. Well, actually, consciousness or mind is the framework we should work within, and out of that, we derive value. Again, at the very high levels, theologically, where all this nerdy stuff is hashed out, I think we can't do without either of those. The mutual eminence of mind and value, mutual eminence of possibility and actuality, and extending it down to the world, at least for Whitehead's world, yeah. the mutual eminence of God in the world. So I'm pointing to this tangle, which I don't know. I think it's helpful, and there's been intuitions of a lot of relational domains of ultimacy in that way going way back so i'm participating in that conversation but i don't really go into that as much as in this book but it is an important discussion because one could equally say why the hell is god possible god's actual god's possible what's the status of god's possibility mm -hmm. i think at that point you have to say well part of what it means to be god at least in some sense is god is the synthesis part of what it means to be divine ne necessary is to be the synthesis of the possible and the actual yeah and shit i mean i don't know if you can go beyond beyond something like that it's just tough to you know and at least in my understanding, right, this is part of what makes process panentheism in, in many ways fundamentally different from classical theism, right? The idea that you would be able to synthesize possibility into the divine, right, that that's would have been taken as an attack on immutability, which was, you know, not an option for classical theism. And, and at least in my opinion, is part of why classical theism ultimately fails. I mean, that's certainly the, the case that process thinkers have made, right? But yeah, we, we love divine becoming. <laughs> we don't <laughs> find that problematic. 
I think it's an element of blind perfection, at least Hartshorn argued that. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the crux of, of a big debate, certainly. How do you think about process theology while kind of holding on to some of these more orthodox uh, yeah. terms that, that you can't just so readily jettison from the tradition? Yeah, and I think we need to be careful with that. I think process thinkers should be careful with it, too, because there's much in the tradition that's worth preserving. And I think one of the critiques of process thinkers is they too quickly just spit all over classical theism, you know, like I get it, I get it, you know, but there's a lot of depth there. So just to, as a larger comment, somebody like Lewis Ford, who was brilliant, Ford and Norman Pittenger, who was also early Anglican process thinker, were the first ones to extend their thinking and process framework to this sort of idea. And it's related to the tradition because we have ideas of sin in the tradition, right? Uh, even Tehard wonders, what do we do with original sin? if we extend it to other planets, right? Did they fall into sin? If not, do they need a, uh, you know, Jesus? Does Jesus hop planets? Or, you know, so there's all this sort of doctrinal tangle that happens in this material, which I don't go into. It's interesting. If I were to do a process Christian exotheology, I'd have to bring that in. Mm -hmm. But if I sidestep that for a second to come to Whitehead, the soteriological domain is there in Whitehead. In fact, his famous statement is that God does not create the world. He saves it, or rather, God is the poet of the world with tender patience, leading it by his vision of truth, beauty, and goodness, right? Those are those damn platonic ideals again. But there's that soteriological dimension that I think you can build up and leverage within a tradition, within a Christian tradition or a different Islamic tradition, what have you, to think about the ways in which God is seeking the salvation of beings. I realize salvation is a term that is utterly full of baggage, given its Christian connotations, but but well, there's an element of soteriology that belongs in some sense. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Does, does that help? I mean, there's, there's it, an entry point. It does. And it's also, it, it, it's a little bit confounding to me as well, because if I kind of go along with that, and I'm happy to do that, and I'm also happy to go along with process as a sort of increasing beautification, complexification, these sorts of things. Yeah. I'm also thinking about bringing it back to thinking from our own experience, um, mm -hmm. thinking about looking at the course of humanity, per se, and thinking about the climate crisis. Yeah. I think there's an a really, really challenging sense there in which why should we think about increasing complexity as necessarily a good? Perhaps it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Um, there, there's a we've been talking about the tangle of things, right? So there's a certain tangle of values that that happen, right? So where value is increased in complexification, the horror of its opposite necessarily comes with it and absolutely the case that complexity can mean absolute horror we've seen that in auschwitz which i was walking through in 2017 right this sort of drive to integrate creative violence and technology right um it's aesthetically intense but it's evil and so whitehead again doesn't want to say everything that's aesthetically intense is good that would be a very naive claim right um, so I, I hold that tension with you. Absolutely. You know, it's, yeah, I uh, guess I guess I just suppose like to draw a conclusion that, you know, say God is good, I, mm -hmm. I think is like to maybe kind of get ahead of oneself. <laughs> right. We don't know how this is all going to work out. Mm -hmm. In fact, we do have some speculations in, in the biggest picture. Like at the end of the book, you're like, uh, does the universe die with a whimper or does it die with a bang? Right. Either way, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah. right. That's right. And so I but I. So, I mean, the question of purpose of goodness is so fundamental. And right, in a, in a sense, what you're pointing to is an eschatological sort of thing. It's like, yeah, yeah we don't ultimately know if if God is good until, you know, and, and uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann argued this too, right? That God is good as a hypothesis, mm, <laughs> right? right? That, that that we will reach potentially an answer to eschatologically or or perhaps not. 
I think there's other reasons to think about God being good, but the question of purpose, I think you're bringing up is, is quite a good one. Um, but I don't think purpose should be linked to the end state of things. It's like saying, you know, the purpose of your life is your corpse. I don't think anybody would want to say that. Mm -hmm. uh, the purpose of, of life would be in the achieved value that occurs in the process of your life and not, not its end state. Yeah. You know? So I think those distinctions are, are I think helpful, but, but yeah, I mean, those are extremely tough questions. I don't fully admit that, you know? Well, what's your, what's your take on that? What is the fate of the universe? And, and why does asking that question matter? What's the stakes in that question? Um, yeah. Cause I think uh, we, we want to know uh, certainly if things find a sort of cohesive coherence in some way. Now, to, Teilhard, in some sense, thought so, right? This omega point that is not just something in the future, but something now. It's a little harder to say that on Whitehead's scheme, right? There's no inherent guarantee. Arguably, it's not there in Teilhard either, but that that things are going to work out in a, in a significant sense, um, mm -hmm. eschatologically. But I mean, the universe is going to... Let me step back. I won't say the universe is going to die out. So I'm not quite sure precisely what the universe in total is. We mm -hmm. certainly know our sun is going to die out. Earth is going to die out. But the, I think the universe is an infinite game and not a finite game. And I think that the pursuit of beauty and the pursuit of these certain primal values we've been struggling with is an infinite game too. Even if we're not there objectively to, to experience those things, we will have, at least for Whitehead scheme, contributed to that achieved value in the consequent nature of God. We, we live on through God. And process thinkers might argue that post-mortem, we have a, a form of destiny beyond death. There's interesting debates about that leveraging near-death experience, et cetera. So I think these are all open kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. I, for one, don't think that, I don't see any reason why death should be the, the final stop to experience, especially if the universe is in the business of producing value. It might be valuable to also to also preserve. So again, this is a sort of axiological mm -hmm. argument, an axiological hope too, right? There's no proof of this. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I, I think I can get on board with the idea that as the sort of universe unfolds and produces value, those values become part of the sort of the virtual field or, or realm of possibility. And I'm happy to go along with that as a sort of soft Platonism or whatever you want to call it. But the idea that they're yeah. eternal is something I, yeah, I just struggle with that one. Sure. But it's like saying they're eternal in the sense that uh, nothing can ever, um, how do we put it, make it not the case that you and I existed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The, the past, at least for what it is, is objectively immortal. He'll use that language, right? What has occurred will have always have occurred, right? Mm -hmm. But it but it doesn't die into nothingness for him. The past perishes into the divine memory. It perishes into this consequent nature, which is the ground of, of truth, frankly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the ground of, of perishing in the storehouse of what has perished and mm -hmm. what is accomplished. It's immortal, you know? There's kind of an eternal return. And I guess if you go with the sort of, you know, cyclical model of the universe, you know, big crunch, et cetera, if this happens in infinite amount of times, then everything's happened in infinite amount of times. <laughs> and there is a cer yeah. certain kind of immortality in that. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, I don't think there's any necessity in the process universe to have things endlessly repeat in the sort of Nietzschean sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, precisely because what the universe is up to, at least what God is up to, and Nietzsche didn't really have that, that option, right? is radical novelty it's part of the function of god is to make sure at least try to make sure that the past doesn't repeat itself it has to to have a world in some sense but but ultimately constantly repeating itself would spell a uh, kind of dead end and stagnation yeah. Yeah. It, it strikes me as that this in in some ways it's a way of thinking of ontology as historical in the same way that that event sort of pile on if we get to a point you know in 
10,000 years where the French Revolution is completely forgotten, right? It will nevertheless be the case that human civilization in 10,000 years, I'm being optimistic that we're still here in 10,000 years, but, you know, <laughs> maybe we solve some climate issues. Uh, but uh, if we're still here and we've forgotten about it, it will nevertheless be the case that that will have contributed to the formation of, of what culture and civilization is like at that point, just in the same way, right, that there are infinite events in our history that we don't know about that we can't reconstruct that we don't have the data for that nonetheless affect us it feels like in many ways this is sort of a historicization of ontology in that same way yeah i mean that's a great way to put it and that it's the case that it will always have been like that it's just kind of interesting right mm -hmm. it's interesting that at least in principle we can't change the past you know <laughs> depending on who you talk to but yeah i mean that it is metaphysically significant one of you mentioned time earlier this temporal dimension at least for the process world is a ontological fact. This notion that becoming is far more fundamental than being is this notion in some sense that temporal events are what characterize the nature of time. And therefore that we have to face not just the problems of becoming a novelty, but also perishing and preservation, preservation, preservation. Having done a lot of my work in the continental tradition, it really strikes me that this way of thinking about the sort of Whiteheadian project is really interesting. And I think it illuminates why he was so appealing to somebody like Deleuze. And it, at the same time, it, it sort of makes it sad because I think that there are there are places for real rapprochement between those traditions that for the most part don't talk to each other. Because, you know, this idea, right, that that time is ultimate, that becoming is ultimate, that ontology is developing historically, like, like that's also what Heidegger says, right? <laughs> like there are yeah. these, these fundamental similarities in these traditions. And and, it, and it, it strikes me as disappointing uh, that there isn't more <laughs> more talking across those lines. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That disappointing and challenging too, because we have to decipher you know ways in which thinkers are, are different. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned Roland Faber earlier. I don't know if you guys have read much of Faber's work, but he does a lot with Deleuze, mm -hmm. Deleuze and Whitehead. He has an article called "For a More Deleuzean Whitehead," where he's precisely <laughs> you know bringing these questions together. And that's in uh, I edited a, a book with him, "Deaths as Yet Unspoken." Mm -hmm. is the title of that book but it's a it's a it's a cool article and we look at the mystical sort of whitehead in that too so it's mm. i mean it is happening these conversations but yeah i don't know if you know aj turner's over at uh, drew we had him on recently he was he, he okay. was i think originally meant to work under faber but then because he retired is with catherine um but anyway okay. yeah so he ch he challenged us um in a recent conversation to read some faber so i i, I promised i would get around to it and i will <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, feel free to reach out for recommendations. Um, Faber was my dissertation advisor and good friend of mine. But yeah, he's now in, he's in Austria. Um, I was recently in Munich for the International Whitehead Conference and almost took a train to see him. But a time frame, speaking of time, was not uh, allowing of that. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he enters much more of that with, sort of with Catherine, the most post-structuralist conversation yeah. takes it in some pretty interesting areas. So, yeah, I yeah. think she's a, she's a really interesting case of of what it looks like when these two different conversations start to sort of cross over into each other. Yeah. To be sure. Yeah. So we should, uh, you know, uh, we should engender more, more of those kinds of conversations. So, um, I think so. Yeah. yeah, we're going to have, if, more if you can get Faber on a podcast, that's a, that's <laughs> I, I mean, if you want to, uh, if you want to make an introduction, <laughs> I could try, but yeah. Was, How old is he now? Um, I, I think he's, um, late sixties. Okay. Yeah. yeah so he's, he's got, he's got energy. Definitely. He's got a lot of energy. Here's something to look out for too. 
you know, this book is just a sort of slice of a much, much larger project. I mean, the Metaphysics of Exolife book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the larger project emerges from a conference that I organized at the Center for Process Studies a couple of years ago. And so we have a very large text coming out. The title of it is Astrophilosophy, Exotheology, and Cosmic Religion, uh, subtitle Extraterrestrial Life in a Process Universe. And so that's Lexington volume. It's the first sustained collaborative scholarly investigation of hmm. uh, the scientific, philosophical, theological dimensions of process thought and their bearing on these sort of issues. Nice. So awesome. Father and I are, are editing that. And then he just wrote a, a massive tome called The Mind of Whitehead, too. That's, you know, seven, eight hundred pages. So it's no simple reading, um, but it's worthwhile. You know, if, if you've got the, the time, come back to the temporal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So what are you up to next? Well, we just finished the Whitehead Tehard event. We're going to be producing, as I mentioned, um, the first book, first edited book on Whitehead and Tehard. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, Matt Siegel. I think you talked with my, my friend Matt recently. Mm -hmm. So he and I are organizing a, an event on the work of ian mcgilchrist the recent work of ian mcgilchrist oh nice uh, oh yeah yeah i saw that yeah. that's happening that's cool yeah fascinating work his his book the matter with things is quite interesting the second part uh in particular i mean the first part's all neuroscience and, and philosophy the second part is leveraging to metaphysical sort of conclusions so we are bringing ian and a number of other scholars uh john verveke and richard, oh. richard tarnas and uh, Michael Levin, others to the California Institute for Integral Studies to have a sort of sustained collegial yet, yet critical exploration of Ian's work. So that's happening in March. You can come in person. You can come online. If you yeah. go to the Center for Process Studies, there's information. You can subscribe your email and then you'll get registration information. But the reason I thought that was an important event to organize is because McGilchrist is quite friendly to process dimensions, yeah. Schelling, Bergson, Whitehead, others and, and they're replete throughout his work so he seems to be a natural ally in thinking about some of these questions and we're gonna we're gonna sort of take it to him and critique his work and see how far we can go in march so yeah i mean beyond that i'm not just a academic i like narrative spiritual work as well so i have a book series with monkfish that's continuing the first one was called how i found god and everyone and everywhere it's an anthology of spiritual memoirs each chapter a different personal narrative rendering by one of the more popular spiritual voices today so I have another one, another volume of that coming out in, uh, I guess it'll be yeah early 2024. Okay. So it's a lot. I like to, you know, between teaching and scholarship and and mentoring narrative, spiritual mention, it's sort of, I like to keep those at play in my, in my life to the extent I can. Yeah. And the aliens, of course. Yeah. And aliens. Yeah. Well, you, you're, you're keeping busy. You're keeping busy. So that's, that's a good thing. But yeah, if I haven't said it already, I really enjoyed the book. I, yeah. I thought it raises some, some really interesting questions and, if anyone isn't that familiar with Whitehead, I think this is a really good primer. Without all the technical jargon, you kind of get a sense for what his thought is all about. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. I mean, it's, again, it's me throwing the process hat into this conversation, and there's multiple reviews being written on it now, and it'll be interesting to see what the reception is like. So, yeah, it's an unfolding conversation that, we're, that process thinkers only now, I think, are beginning to contribute to. So it's a story that's, you know, being written. Yeah. Well, you know, if aliens actually show up, this is all going to go to shit, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. None of this is going to matter. <laughs> oh, right. I'm like, read my book. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it would be interesting um, to see no something. What we, we, and, and, I, and I couldn't let you go without asking. So taking off the sort of proper philosophical rigorous hat, um, putting on, I guess, the tinfoil hat. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> nice. With congressional hearings and all of this, uh, in your in your deepest heart of hearts, uh, have we contacted aliens? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remain, as I think everyone must, deeply skeptical about a lot of these claims. Yep. You know, 
uh, we do face a crisis of truth, I think, currently for a lot of different reasons. I think we should extend that skepticism to these claims. I don't find them impossible, you know, and I think some are more trustworthy potentially than others. I think of uh, just as an example, like John Mack, are you guys familiar with psychiatrist Harvard a number of years ago? He, he spent 30 years rigorously interviewing, investigating abduction phenomena, you know, people that were having these forms of experience. And he didn't come to the conclusion that they're crazy in any means. He sort of spiritualized it. He believed it. He spiritualized it. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to remain open to it. We have to remain skeptical, but demanding of empirical data, mm-hmm. you know, but when you can make stuff up, you know, in video format, that doesn't help too. That doesn't help the, this sort of crisis we're in. So I remain open to it. And um, the literature has been preparing the way for a society to come to terms with this too, not just Stephen Dick, but others. How is society going to react? There's certain test cases that have been, out, been put out there. You know, so SETI is passively listening, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence is actually sending things out. And some are, and some people say they're already here and I've seen, you know, yeah. which, um, what's his yeah. name? The guy, uh, Jesus Christ, famous guy, uh, dead wheelchair, very smart. Hawking, yeah, Hawking. <laughs> Hawking he's, I remember he, <laughs> him famously saying that, you know, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't be trying to contact aliens because they'll just come over here and fucking devour us. Yeah, right. Right. Or that might be a projection of our own barbaric nature onto the mm-hmm. cosmos. Might not be a real thing we should do. You know, mm-hmm. one could make the case. Faber actually makes the case in this big tome that's coming out, the astro philosophy tome. He makes the case for extraterrestrial spiritual life. Is the universe really a dark forest, right? As it's been said, that is, are planets and species out there just hiding behind trees as if in a dark forest for fear of being shot and devoured immediately is that the kind of universe we live in devoid of value of compassion of harmony of some sense or are any beings we meet they have to be radically uh, more advanced than us they have to survive their own barbaric nature in some sense transcended it and there might be a case to be made that they're going to be more spiritual and not more barbaric sure. you never know right so, so i mean that's an interesting discussion but yeah Thanks, Hawking. <laughs> well, that's the future. They're spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> that's good. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is this has been an absolute blast. And you know, like every good conversation, I leave you know with with a desire to read something I haven't wanted to read in a while. And all I want to do right now is like go to my bookshelf and crack back open my white head. So uh, I think that's cool. a, that's a, that's a, a testament to to your work. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and I hope we can get a chance to do it again stay in touch we got a lot of fun things happening so stay involved and everybody listening to stay in touch with me andrewmdavis.info and the center for process studies too which we have a lot of opportunities for people to to stay tuned on what's going on cool yeah we'll link to all that stuff thanks man awesome thank you gents talk to you later have a good night bye you too So thanks to Andrew. Make sure to check out his book. Thank you for listening to the end. Nicely done. We have a Patreon. So if you'd like to support the show in that way, it's appreciated. And you'll find the link to that in the show notes as well. All right. See you next time.